Sometimes it's important to just let a question linger. Who is like you, God? And of course, the answer to that question is no one. He is the one true holy God Almighty. And he has made us a promise that someday he will return. He will reclaim his throne in this earth. And we will be those that are liberated. That's right. Glory belongs there. But at that time, we will also be judged. And sometimes in the, in the mercy and grace of our God, we don't do ourselves a favor to forget the sobering reality of that inevitable and inescapable reckoning. This parable is about that reckoning, I think. I didn't think that at first. I didn't think that. When I first titled this, I read this scripture, and I just read the verses of the scripture, and I said, Lord, what are you saying there? And I heard uh, your due diligence. This is what this is calling you to, to your due diligence. And at the time, I was looking at it from the perspective of the planter of this fig tree in this parable. This is the parable of, of the fig tree that uh, an owner planted, and he, and he comes back to it year after year, and it doesn't produce any fruit. And then finally he gets frustrated with it, and he says, cut it down. It's just taking up the ground and wasting the good earth. And uh, the idea being, you know, you could plant another fig tree, and almost any other fig tree would have produced figs by now. But for three years after it should have been producing fruit, I've been coming looking for fruit, and there is no fruit there, so cut it down. And the vine keep, the, the vineyard keeper says to the master, oh, uh, sir, l- l- let me fertilize it and dig around it. Let, let, let me increase its possibilities of producing fruit. Let me fertilize it. Let me clear away anything that might be distracting or stressing it. Let, l- let me... Uh, do that, and let's give it one more year, and then fine. If it doesn't produce any fruit, then cut it down. And uh, I, I, I saw myself as the vine, uh, as the vineyard owner, as the one who had planted the tree. And I thought, well, this is calling me to do due diligence. You know what I mean? Due diligence. I, 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 have, I have some ideas that I kind of live by, and I hope they're biblical. You know, one of them is this. If the horse is dead, dismount. That, that's one of the things I try to live by. If the horse is dead, dismount. Uh, and, and it took me a long time to learn that as a pastor. Uh, I would have ideas that over the course of time would re- be revealed not to have been God's ideas at all, but I would stick to them. You know what I mean? I would just drive this into the dirt until there was a... I remember I started a special service one time, had 20 people at the first service. I continued that service for four years until finally two weekends in a row, I was the only person that showed up. Wow. When the horse is dead, dismount. So sometimes, you know, I thought, well, sometimes this is true in relationships. 
Uh, sometimes there comes a time in a relationship where it's important because that relationship is being taken for granted or the other person is not mutually responding or, or, or there's great neglect that's going on that you have to confront the other person and say, look, I give you a season to repent, but after that, you're choosing the consequences. Due diligence. And I heard this calling me to go, you know, give it its best chance, but when the horse is dead, dismount. And then I came back to it and I felt in my spirit, that's not what this is about at all. At all. And in fact, you don't really have a clue of how to take it. Jesus, when he told this parable, was not telling the parable so that we could take the perspective of the one who owned the fig tree. He was telling this parable so that we would take the, par- the, the perspective of the fig tree. Not the owner, not the one that's deciding, but the one that's being called to repentance. Look at its context. I'm going to start in the beginning of chapter 13. Read those first five verses so that what happens in 6 through 9 takes its proper place. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans who were, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. If they had had papers, it had been in all the papers. If they had had CNN, it would have been the top story. A horrible thing. Pilate had slaughtered Galileans who were in worship and there mingled their blood with their sacrifices. And he answered and said to them, Do you suppose that those Galileans who were greater, were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such a horrible fate? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the other men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He's talking about tragedies, but he's warning them of a greater tragedy. One that's not about somebody else, but one's about, about them. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling them a parable. So in that context, Jesus tells this parable. A certain man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any fruit. And he said to the vineyard keeper, behold, For three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too. Until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, Cut it down. Cut it down. You know, it was telling parables like this that were so pointed and so disturbing that Jesus' teachings were not always popular. In fact, they eventually got him killed. 
I see wisdom in the fact that he told these parables so quickly. It may be completely stupid of me to spend more than 20 minutes on it. You know what I mean? I, I could easily get stoned. But this is the truth of the Lord, and it's important, I think, that we hear it when it's easy to hear, and even sometimes when it's challenging to hear. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus warns them that there are those who are blind to their own sin to the point that they're misjudging God's patience as a license to sin rather than as a, a patient time for them to come to repentance of it. And, and most people are thinking, well, at least my sin isn't as bad as Pilate's. It isn't as notorious. It isn't as tragic as all that. So they're pointing the fingers at others. Who should repent? They would never think of themselves. And so Jesus is alerting them to the fact that if they themselves do not repent, tragedy awaits them too. It's a wake-up call. Verses 6 through 9 are not those who are wallowing in sin, but those whose lives are fruitless. They're the planting of the Lord, but their lives are fruitless. What kind of fruit's being looked for here? I think it's kingdom fruit. Kingdom fruit in ourself, which would be the maturing of our character. Freedom of king, uh, our presence of kingdom fruit in us for the world, which would be our service and our witness. This parable comes up only in Luke. It's like the story of the fruitless fig tree. In which Jesus approaches Jerusalem. Some of us are even saying even now, oh, God would never be so harsh as to judge. No, he's a God of justice and a God of truth. We dare not forget that. In in the other Gospels, there's a story somewhat like this, but it's about what Jesus actually did, not what Jesus taught. This parable is only in Luke. But what happens in the other Gospels is Jesus approaches Jerusalem And it's the last time he comes to Jerusalem. And despite all of his pleading and all of his patience with those in Jerusalem, nothing has changed. He looks into Jerusalem as a fruitless place. He comes to a fig tree and it's fruitless and he curses it. And the disciples are astonished at how quickly that curse withers it to death. So, so I think we do ourselves a disservice to deceive ourselves to think that God is not capable of judgment. He is a holy God. Holy. But fig trees are interesting. Let me share with you a few things about fig tree. He, he comes to that fig tree and he finds only leaves. This is a fig tree. They can become mammoth trees. In fact, many times these fig trees are talked about as places for shade and rest and, and sometimes uh, reading and, and meditation. And remember, Jesus found one of his disciples. He said he saw him under the fig tree when he had been praying. People would often pray and gather around fig trees. And, and they're, they're a wonderful shade. The leaves are huge. They're, they're about sometimes twice as big as your hand just huge leaves for shade but he came to a young fig tree like this one that apparently he had come three years and if this if this uh vineyard owner knew his figs 
he would know that it takes two years before they even would produce figs. And so he would have started coming then if he knew his figs on the, in the third year. So now he's come the third year, the fourth year, the fifth year, and he still found no figs. And a fig tree will produce figs or not in the third to the sixth year. But already this fig tree has lived twice as long in that spot, drinking up that nourishment as most fig trees will when they start producing fruit in the third year. So these are, these are just some, some facts about figs that your pastor got off the internet. He's not a fig expert, okay? But, 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 but fig trees are incredibly hardy. You've you got to realize these are not delicate plants. They grow like weeds throughout the Mediterranean. They, they, they thrive in that, that dry, arid uh, rains ever so often, but not too often kind of climate. And, and this one is so hard. This is actually the ruins of Nero's uh, palace uh, off the Mediterranean in Italy. And this, this particular, do you, do you see this fig, this fig tree, its roots have come through the top of this old ruin and it has sprouted a tree growing down. Now, th- this is a tree that will grow anywhere in the med. It, it, is, it is a weed. It is as common as pine trees in Dixie. You know what I'm talking about? Just, it's just made for this climate. And, and yet this person has gone out of his way not just to let it grow in that climate. It usually, they grow, they grow wild, but he's, he's made a vineyard of it. He, he's nourished these trees. And so there's a picture of the same tree growing upside down from the other direction. And he, and he, draw, he plants these vineyards in the hope of this, coming to the tree and finding not only the huge leaves of shade, but also the fruit. Next picture. Fruit that's become ripe. Uh, figs. And uh, he's come looking for this sustenance that grows wild and grows plenteous all over the Mediterranean. And for some reason, this tree is barren of any fruit. Now, I also studied on the internet why that sometimes happens. Well, sometimes it happens, usually not because it's not had enough water or because it's not had enough fertilizer. And I don't know quite what to make of this. But uh, when a tree is stressed, it doesn't produce fruit. And when it is over-fertilized, it grows leaves so fast, it doesn't slow down enough to produce the fruit. So it wouldn't make sense for this guy to say, I'll fertilize it more if that's the problem. He's looking at this tree, realizing what it needs, and saying, I'll give it every chance. I'll remove every encumbrance. I'll dig, dig the stuff away, and, I, and I'll fertilize it. I'll nurture it. I'll, I'll give it every opportunity to be faithful to your expectation. But when Jesus came to that tree, and when he tells this parable, this is all that's found. No fruit. Nothing but leaves. Now, what's Jesus telling us about this fig tree? First of all, this fig tree is not being mistreated. It's it's not being unfairly expected of. There's probably a word for that that I can't grasp right now. But there's no unfair expectation here. It's been granted time. And if the vineyard inspector, the planter of, of, of the the tree has come for three years and he knows that fig trees don't produce until uh, after the second year 
And he's come for three years. We're in year five at least of this tree's opportunity for fruit. Between three and six years. Maybe one last year. And this is, this is where the, the vineyard owner's uh, cost reward. Business people have terms for that. What's that called? Return on investment. Yeah, this is where he starts evaluating his return on investment. John, you, you'd understand this better than I would. Where, where he, he's planted this tree. He's waited for its year of fruitfulness. And now it is into those years of unfaithfulness that cutting it down and planting a new tree that would produce fruit in its third year would probably overtake. Do you, do you hear his reasoning in this? He, he's, he's a vineyard owner with some sense. And this is the kind of thing a vineyard owner would do. He would cut down that tree, realizing that it's missed its opportunity for fruitfulness in order to plant a tree that likely would grow fruitful in the same soil. So he's been patiently granted time to at least the fifth year. Here, the keeper of the vineyard pleads with him, no, even one more year, and he grants that grace. But he's found fruitless. We don't know why. But we're not given the, the luxury of blaming it on stress or the lack of rain, which probably wouldn't have caused a problem anyway. Or too much rain. Now that might have caused a problem. Or too much fertilizer. You've got a vineyard keeper that doesn't know what he's doing. There's, there's perhaps a few reasons for which this tree would be found fruitless. But that doesn't seem to be the point of the parable. The point of the parable is the tree is responsible for its own fruitfulness. It, it, it has this expectation from the one who planted it. And not only is it found fruitful, fruitless, it's also considered wasteful. It's in the way. It's taking up the space in a place where fruit could be being provided. Perhaps it's true that even within the church of God and with the fellowship of God... We're either rowing or we're riding. And here's a tree that's enjoying the protection and the pampering of the vineyard keeper. But producing no fruit for the one who planted him. And the next phase is that this tree is now due destruction. Judgment comes. And it's interesting, isn't it? I think both in the natural and in the supernatural uh, Judgment follows this kind of neglect. That's true just naturally. You know what I mean? If, if you're not, how many of you know that if you're not invested in the things you should be doing, it's much easier to get entangled in the things you should not be doing? You know what I'm saying? If, if, if we've given ourselves over to idleness, the dissatisfaction of that or the dissatisfaction and and misplaced passions and, and, and investments render us so depleted that then we're, we're, we're weakened and, and temptation has a, has a uh, calling card then that's much more powerful, 
right? And if we're, if we're not invested in that which we should be doing, then that which we should not be doing has, has a greater claim on us. And if we give in to that temptation, there are natural consequences for stupid. But I don't know that that's... This parable is talking about not a, not a natural consequence, though it can be that. He's, it's concerned about the wastefulness of it, but it's also concerned about a judgment that's surely coming. Let me, let me tell you, in the scriptures, we learn that there are two judgments that we cannot avoid. And, and they're both associated with the day of Christ's return. Now, I know some of us, in fact, most of us, you know, I've been amazed as I've studied these parables and just surveyed them and getting ready for this series, how many of Jesus' parables were about being ready. Being ready. It may be the most prolific parable he told had that lesson in it. Be ready. And it's interesting to me why Jesus would teach about being ready when he knew that there was only one generation in which he would return. And there were going to be how many between when he said it and when it happens that would live with those teachings? I think whether or not it's in our generation or in a generation to come, if we live ready, we live better now. That was no miscalculation on Jesus' part. But be certain of this. Our God keeps his promises. There will be a day of vindication for those who have been faithful to him. Who have been faithful to him. And by faith have received his gift of salvation. There are two judgments. One is a judgment about that sort of faith. Is this a person who has trusted Jesus for their righteousness before God? Or not. It's not a judgment on how good you are. It's a judgment based on whether or not you've trusted the goodness of God that he came to give you. Or if you've rejected that gift. And the scriptures teach in Romans the first, second, third chapter that there's no one in the world that escapes that judgment. Parables of sheeps and goats and all that sort of stuff, right? We are in a season of grace. Do we have the fruit of faith? That's one judgment. And once those who have never responded to a God who would not only create them and provide for them, but pursue them even to death upon a cross that he might justify them and redeem them and present himself again to them again and again and again, like a groom waiting at an altar to hear a word of some kind of positive response for the one for whom he has already died. Given his all. For those who have said yes to that, there is a judgment of another kind. We find about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I think it's about verse 9 where it says, We will all appear, and he's talking to believers then. We will all appear before the judgment seat of God. The Bema seat. There's a second judgment for those who are believers who have been received into heaven. 
1 Corinthians chapter 3, the end of that chapter talks about those who build upon the foundation of Christ, what he has done for them. But upon that foundation, they build with, with gold and precious stones or with wood, hay, and stubble. And in this second judgment, there will be a discerning by God of what was done for him, in him, by his spirit, us cooperating with him, gold, precious silver, those things that will survive the fire of this judgment and other things that have just been us doing our thing. Wood and hay and stubble. And it says that that will be burned away in this judgment and all that will be left are those gems and those precious stones that survived the fire and have been refined to be our crowns and our rewards in heaven. Now, I just gave you about six semesters in New Testament theology right there. But, but that, that's the bottom line. Judgment is inescapable. And there is one who looks in every person's life for the fruit of faith and for the works of fruit. The fruit of faith that they might be saved and God's eternally. The, 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 the passage in Second Corinthians, First Corinthians talks about a, the man who has only wood, hay, and stubble passing through the fire and all of that being burned away, though he himself is saved. Right? I don't know if you, some of you were here back years ago when we did the Bama Seat drama. And I, I, I played the gentleman in that series and, 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 that, and that little play, and it messed me up. <laughs> because in so many ways I identified with the character in, in that story. He was a Christian. He, he had faith in Christ. He, he, he loved the Lord, but he, he never really applied it much. There was one friend back in his high school days that he, he seemed to plant seed into and, and give to and, and nurture in the Lord in some way. And there was some kingdom fruit in her life, but he looked back over his whole life with Jesus, now at this Bama seat judgment, and saw that his life, I can remember the phrase, was mostly worth less. I heard a gentleman on, on the radio last night. Uh, he's... Uh, Oh, I thought I'd remember his name, but it's, it's passing. For, he, he, he's one of our ambassadors, and he, he was in the Air Force. And uh, there, there was a moment when he was flying one of his Air Force test planes and, and, and nearly died. He came out of the fog realizing that he was about 200 feet off the ground, upside down, and headed into the earth. And pulled it, turned it over and pulled it out just in time between a farmhouse and trees to get back up in the air. And the next day, he saw his life in a different perspective. He went back home and he saw trophies of all kinds of accolades of what he had done as a pilot and as a, a man in the service. Medals, trophies, wood, hay, and stubble. And at that point in his life, he decided it was time for him to repent. That he was going to make the rest of his life about serving others and serving his God. Today, he's not just an Air Force pilot 
collecting medals. He's an ambassador nurturing lives in the continent of Africa. But, but, but what if that daunting moment of realization had not come to him? That his life is not forever. That he lives in a season of grace and mercy and provision now in which he can choose to be fruitful or not. You see, this passage is really clear. God will do his due diligence. He will plant us. He will be patient with us. He will nurture us. He will give us second, third, continual chances God will do his due diligence. And in 2 Peter 3, 9, it warns us, though, not to mistake or misunderstand that kind of patience. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some commit account slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And Jesus was at, would add not only repenting of things that, that are horribly bad, that's part of this teaching. That, that's what Jesus is saying beforehand. You, you think those people suffered a tragedy and you think in error that that's because they must have been really on God's blacklist. But wake up, he's saying. A greater tragedy of God's judgment awaits you if you do not repent. You know, if this was not being spoken by somebody who had not already been to heaven and was going back to heaven and was going to welcome me into heaven someday, I would have probably popped him in the mouth. You know what I'm talking about? This, this is confrontive stuff. And that's exactly why I think so many people reacted to him so viciously and so violently they could not handle the sobering truth that he was teaching. God is duly diligent to pursue us, to grace us towards his kingdom, to love us towards himself. But what about our due diligence? Have we repented of our sin? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. But what does it mean to repent? It means to turn from something else our sin toward God. It, remain, it means to turn from something else, our fruitfulness toward God. And God, as we abide in that vine, will make us fruitful. Repentance is turning from and turning toward. It's not turning from fruitlessness to fruitfulness, so God will accept me. That's not repentance. That's works righteousness. And that is not what this parable is calling us to. It's calling us to sober partnership with the one who does not want us to fail, who has poured himself out that we might share his victory. We might be called this morning to turn from sin. We might be called to turn from fruitlessness. To turn from the tragedy of 
a life that knows no faith and from a life that knows no fruitfulness. A life that still has the opportunity to turn from destruction or dedication There are no other choices. So God is duly diligent. But the point of this parable is, is our diligence due? Is today the day of salvation? Is today... The first day of another year where he will come and find us fruitless of that that he is looking for in our lives. Will we continue to procrastinate? Will we we rest in his goodness and in his patience to the point that we ourselves become irresponsible and unresponsive. It was, it was some time ago, um, I think I actually saw this game that, that I'm referring to. In 1987, the NCAA regional finals, LSU was leading Indiana by eight points with only a few minutes left in the game. Just a few minutes, an eight-point lead, Indiana thought they were safe. And as it often happens in that case, the team with the lead became playing a, began playing a different kind of game. No, no, I'm sorry, LSU was leading Indiana. It was the other way around by eight points. Uh, and as, and as often happens, when you get a big lead and, and there's not much time left, the response of the team that's in the lead is often to get careful. Well, just as long as I don't do anything bad, it's all good. And they get fearful and they get timid rather than playing to win. That's what happened in that game. LSU's players were beginning to watch the clock rather than wholeheartedly play the game. And as a result, in the few minutes that were left, their shifted focus gave Indiana the opportunity to close the gap. They ended up winning the game by one point and eventually went on to become the NCAA champions. That Jesus is returning is not an invitation for us to watch the clock. That Jesus is returning is a promise for us to count the moments that we have left as a time where we can do our due diligence, where we can join God and his purposes in this earth or not, that our lives can become fruitful for the kingdom or not during whatever time we have available. And folks, I don't know how much time that is. 
in this parable, would this be our third year? Or our fourth year? Or our fifth year? Or our last year? Will this be one of many, many more days to come? Or one of only a few? Sobering thought. Not just for fig trees. Would you pray with me? Lord God, though we hear your warning to us today, we know that you stand ready with the turning of our hearts to encourage our every step, with a following of your purposes for you to fully provide, that with the turning of our hearts, fruitfulness and faithfulness are still possible. And so, Lord God, help us to hear right now whatever that call is to us. Help us be strong enough to trust you enough not to point to someone else, but to see this as a message for us, not about others. And God, we pray that we could so give ourselves to you that we ourselves would be known as those who are full of faith and full of lasting fruit. God, speak to our hearts right now. We don't want to procrastinate another day. Show us what we're turning from and what we're turning toward. And God, this day will truly be a day of grace. Speak to us now, God. Holy Spirit, guide our thoughts until we know with you that this is it. This is what you're calling us to. Help us to be those who did not reject or walk away from your word without it being heard. But who build our lives upon this rock that we might never regret it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This may be a new day for you. A new direction. And if so, I I would encourage you to make that profession before God. If this is the day that you by faith are accepting what Christ has done for you, that you might be God's forever, we invite you to this altar. And if today there's been a decision in your own heart that you want to lay before God, that you want to say, God, I am not in this alone. I am your fig tree. Make me fruitful. I turn from what you've shown me to turn towards what you've shown me. If this is a day of that decision, this altar is open to you as well. For everybody needs a Savior. Everybody needs a Lord. And we can all make him more that today.
than yesterday. The choice is yours as we stand and sing.